There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, and welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to incredibly inspiring creatives working in the music and arts industries. I'm your host, Chelsea Wilson, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Melbourne-based pianist and composer, Nat Barch. Internationally renowned, Nat's compositions explore the spaces between neoclassical, chamber music and jazz. She's released records on both ABC Jazz and ABC Classic labels and is one of very few artists to be ARIA-nominated for both Jazz and Classical Music Awards. Nat is most well known for her lullaby album Forever and No Time at All, which she created during early motherhood. Inspired by the stages in her son's development, the compositions were designed to soothe babies to sleep but also be enjoyable for adults. As a chamber music composer, Nat has been commissioned to write pieces for Inventi Ensemble, Plexus Collective, Solstice Trio, The Muses Trio, and Matt Withers and Sally Whitwell. She's been awarded the 2021 Merlin Meyer Composition, the 2020 Catherine Mary Sullivan Scholarship, the 2020 Classical Next Artistic Associate Fellowship, the 2019 Johnny Dennis Music Award, and the Melbourne Prize for Music Development, to name just a few. As a mental health advocate, Nat has undertaken research exploring the two-way link between mental health and creativity. Currently, she's completing her Master's in Composition at the Melbourne Conservatorium and working on a jazz version of her latest album, Hope. In this conversation, I ask Nat about developing the album Forever and No Time at All, how she approaches composing, the differences between the classical and jazz music scenes, and how we can all better support mental health in the music industry. This is Nat Barch in Control. Hi Nat, thanks for joining me on the Control podcast. Great to see you. Great to see you too. Thanks Chelsea. I'd firstly love to chat to you about your most recent release, Hope. Can you tell us about this project and why the concept of hope? (laughs) Why not (laughs) in these difficult times? So I guess for me, prior to Hope, I'd released two albums of lullabies and both of them provided a lot of um, lovely feedback from the audience, particularly around the importance of the music to help people cope with difficult things it wasn't Mm. just about sending babies to sleep but people were using this music to support all sorts of grief and trauma and mental illness and I realized that that objective was something I wanted to carry through to my next record and so I planned to write an album that was hopeful sounding kind of like lullaby like but a little bit more um, elaborate and responding to things like Donald Trump being President of the United States and climate change and those things that were really on our mind back a few years ago. (laughs) The problem was that once I started writing it, it, there were even more pressing things on our minds. Climate change really came to the forefront through the Black Summer bushfires Mm. 
And then, of course, after that was COVID-19. And it sort of felt insincere to say that I was writing a truly hopeful album. I see now the title of the album as an abbreviation of hopeful and hopeless because I think for a lot of us, we sat on this spectrum where depending on the day and our perspective, we would look at the situation in one way or the other. And so it's it's still, I think, a very cathartic and peaceful and optimistic sounding album a lot of the time. But I guess it's an album that's trying to create a space for us to acknowledge the stuff that's happened for us and the struggles and the grief that we've all endured in different ways. But by the end track, hopefully people are walking out feeling a sense of optimism for what lies ahead of us. It's got a really beautiful meditative sound like a lot of your discography does. How does it feel when you're playing that repertoire? Do you go into this very relaxed state? Yeah. I I mean, you have to concentrate a lot, (laughs) as all musicians do on stage. I think one of the reasons I compose music like that is an attempt to kind of regulate my own emotions and sensory experience of the world. And if that translates to other people having that experience, then that's really good. And I think because I use a lot of ostinados, those, you know, repeated patterns Mm -hmm. that come through a lot in neoclassical music and minimalism, there's definitely a kind of meditative outcome from playing something over and over like that. And particularly when I play with my jazz quartet playing this music because it's like a real ensemble-focused approach, there's this real... But, like, by the time we get to the end of a set, I'm sort of just floating off the stage because <laughs> it's really it's really meditative and lovely to play with everyone. Well, you definitely create that feeling. It's really stunning. Thank you. The Record Hope was produced by a longtime collaborator of yours, the wonderful Luke Howard. Why do you think you two work together so well? What's the magic ingredient? <laughs> and how did you two approach this particular project? Ah, well, Luke would say he wasn't a co-producer with me. He just pressed record. Mm. <laughs> so I should qualify that because he always interrupts me when I say we co-produced it. But um, we have made several records together and I do see him as a co-producer because there's a wealth of knowledge that he brings into the record making process that I so far have had to tap into, particularly all the tech side. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting a lot better at um, cultivating ambient electronics and um, you know understanding a lot more about the recording process at a sort of technical level. But I think that's one of the reasons why we work together so well is we kind of have these different skill sets that we can bring to a project together. I'm kind of the planner, producer, marketer, hustler type person. And then Luke is often more in a kind of technical capacity, engineering a record or, you know, working on the tech specs for a live show. And so we sort of balance out our time with these different things. And aesthetically, we're very aligned and also our personalities are very similar. And But then it's also funny because I think in a way we're kind of like yin and yang in the same genre like luke's particularly luke's newest album there's like a lot of darkness in it and mine is like the light fluffy stuff (laughs) so it's like we complement each other but we also have our own musical space that that, i guess it's like a venn diagram there's some overlap (laughs) but it's not all the same and 
we did both come from a jazz background and so I think that's one of the main reasons why we collaborate so well together is we think about music in a similar way and we can bring that sort of improvisational approach to the music um, which perhaps particularly in the neoclassical world and also in core classical obviously that's a skill set that not everybody has and we're also just good mates I'm very lucky to circle in his superstar neoclassical orbit from time to time (laughs) it's so important to have someone working with you in a recording studio that you really trust because it can be you know an intimidating environment at times and we can experience that red light fever with recording of oh we're recording and especially it's costing so much money just to be in a beautiful studio space and yeah totally the pressure's on so yeah yeah, what a what a dream team yeah definitely speaking of jazz and classic you've released music under both abc jazz and abc classic labels and have also been nominated for ARIA Awards in both jazz and classical categories. This is pretty rare. <laughs> I kind of feel like your music has its own voice and genre, but our you know our Western minds love to put things into genre categories. Can you talk to us about these two genres of music, these kind of two spaces, how they're perceived by the public and how traversing both of these spaces kind of affects mm. your career? Yeah. I guess the public, it's really interesting. I think there are some people that, you know, identify as a jazz fan or a classical fan and you know they might be the subscribers to an orchestra or they're going to a regular night for the jazz co-op or you know festivals and stuff but I think there are also a lot of listeners particularly in this digital streaming era that just don't even care about genre at all mm-hmm. or genre might mean a different thing for example a peaceful piano playlist so the word for them is peaceful or meditative or musical yep. yoga um, <laughs> and whether that comes from um, a, a classical record or a jazz record probably doesn't matter to them. But I think using genre terms is partly practical, like sourcing a piano requires approaching a jazz or classical venue or a label and then also tapping into that community and audience is important to, you know, make sure there's someone who's ready to receive your music. I think it's also a way of acknowledging the musical culture that you're contributing to. You're trying to respect and understand where it's come from and what you're able to share in in an appropriate way. Mm -hmm. Like I know that jazz and classical can often sit in these little silos with these communities and venues and expectations that are very different. For me, my most comfortable is being able to present work in those within those silos, I guess, um, in a respectful and authentic way. But most importantly, I'm able to just be myself and sit between the genres aesthetically, particularly when I'm sitting at the piano. I'm not really thinking about whether I'm playing jazz or classical. I'm just playing music that hopefully sounds like me. And I found myself describing my music as neo-romantic because it has less connotations than saying neoclassical or jazz or core classical or all those sort of genre terms that particularly exist in the recording world because I think neo-romantic captures both the compositional style that I do but it also describes the lyrical melodic improvisation that I often play on top of that and I also like to be a bit different to everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) I love that as a term neo-romantic I think Mm. that really sums it up really nicely Mm. culturally 
the kind of perceptions of classical and jazz though I guess when you think classical music you think of big orchestra doing this canon of works yep perfectly as per the sheet music you're doing Beethoven as per Beethoven whereas jazz you think of smoky den people drinking (laughs) people not playing anything remotely like the original composition it's all about clapping all the time instead of at the end of 30 minutes and yeah (laughs) yeah it's really those are kind of those massive differences and I guess a lot of people don't think of improvisation within the classical space but that's not entirely correct it's so funny because I think back in the day be it 100 years ago or more improvisation was really common in the classical genre I mean even just the example of the cadenza where you know you would have a work that was notated but then there'd be a section at the end where the violinist could really stretch out and improvise and elaborate and then finish on the cadence point and then somewhere along the way those cadenzas then started to be notated and fixed and then you know there's been musicians like classical musicians that I've worked with where I would ask for the commission I'm writing for them you know can I put some improvisation in and some of them are up for it but some of them will say oh no that was beaten out of us at the conservatory (laughs) (laughs) but I'm no I don't want to say that all classical musicians fall into that category because there are some that are really embracing it and are quite good at improvising but that's just an example I guess of the kind of um cultural barriers that are there um in between one genre and the other ideally there's no genre labels at all and people are just making great music that they want to make and my job actually in the classical world is if I am creating a notated score for example I'm working on scores at the moment for my whole hope album so that it's like a suite of pieces that could be played by another chamber ensemble or another pianist and finishing my master's at the con in Melbourne while doing that and the biggest hurdle for me is that in that world there is an expectation that notation really fully represents what you want the music to sound like so when I write a piece of the piano I'm often writing just a jazz lead sheet to begin with so chords and melody even if it ends up being quite fixed in its notational style there's no pedal markings on the music or dynamics or phrasing or you know descriptive text that says what what world I want it to sound like Um, but if I was writing a work for a different pianist to play there's a bit of an expectation that all of that information is on the page that the score is the best like in a way for example recordings are almost secondary to publishing and engraving a score that represents the music faithfully Um, and I love to think that anybody that might play Hope in the Future um, as a piece might have heard the record and they know what I'm trying to express as a performer myself Um, but you can't necessarily rely on that idea because you know even (laughs) I guess it's different now in the Spotify world where you can kind of google any piece that you've ever played and you'll hear 700 versions but I know growing up for me as a classical pianist studying that at school you know you had your AMEB exams and you had the pieces I don't think I ever heard a recording of the you know Mozart sonata movement that I was playing which is probably a bit of a a problem that I didn't seek those recordings out but it's an example of how you can as a classical player fall into the idea that the score is is all the information you need and so if that's the way someone else wants to approach it, I've got to make sure what's on the page is reflective of my pianistic style. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, I guess back in those days of Mozart and, you know, those revered composers, there was no recording technology. Yeah. So I think people forget that these were real people and it was a real scene and things were changing all the time mm. and Beethoven probably made amendments between one gig to the next. Oh, totally. Actually, that bit didn't work. Let's change that. Yeah. And, you know, if it was now, someone would sign him and he'd record an album. Yeah. But there wasn't that technology then, so he yeah, had to write exactly. it down on a piece of paper. But I don't know that... Yeah necessarily those composers wanted forever more that everyone else performing those songs locked them in exactly as per but maybe they did who knows you don't you don't know but they were improvisers all composing starts with improvising right yeah i guess that's true yeah it's funny someone said to me once i can't remember who it was but there's this funny thing where jazz musicians their objective when they're improvising is to try and sound as kind of notated as possible in the sense that you know, a great solo is one that tells a story in a narrative that in the end could sound like a perfectly crafted composition. Mm. And then a classical musician is often trying to play a piece with so much expression and accuracy and fluidity that it sounds improvised. <laughs> I don't know who it was. If you're listening, thanks for that <laughs> analogy because it stayed with me. It's also culturally, I think, in the behind the scenes work that I do, the difference with a jazz musician and the classical musicians is the jazz musicians always have drinks and a writer backstage. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Um, and the classical musicians are like, what do you mean there's yeah, wine? Yeah. What? Yeah, no, they'll have a drink. They'll have the same amount of wine, but they'll wait until after the premiere. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if you don't have the urn yeah. and the kettle and the, the tea and the bickies, yeah. <laughs> um, they're sort of held pay. <laughs> But often, and that's just so professional, you know, they work, if you work with classical players, they, like I played Hope on the Weekend, for example, with a string quartet in Canberra and, and the venue is sort of all genres and said, you know, do, do you have a, a rider? Like, do you want any drinks backstage? And I was like, I don't even know what, I said, I'd maybe a bottle of wine and then six glasses and we'll see what happens. And then, and then not a single one of them um, had any alcohol. They were so professional that they just wanted to play the music as accurately as possible hmm. and do a really good job. So thanks for that, guys. Which I so love. Good. Yeah. You know, it's beautiful. I'd love to chat to you about Forever and No Time at All. It's a really beautiful album of lullabies that you created after becoming a mother. Can you talk us through the process of putting this album together? I read that you aim to compose pieces at heartbeat tempos and you worked with music therapists. Mm. That's a really interesting way of going about putting a record together. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah. I guess aesthetically I've always written meditative, soothing music in some way. So before um, before I became a mum, I had my jazz trio, Nat Bartsch trio, and that was very ECM jazz-influenced and lots of ballads and quietness and meditation in the music. And... Prior to becoming a parent, my husband was playing drums with the teeny tiny Stevies, mm. um, who of course started as the little Stevies, two mm -hmm. sisters. And then when Sibylla became a parent, they decided to make a kids record where they just stuck to their, you know, beautiful indie folk songwriting style. But that all of a sudden the lyrics were about going to the toilet on the toilet or taking turns or, you know, being kind and things like that. And obviously they've gone super well in their careers and, and I'm so glad for them because it was, they, what they do has so much authenticity 
um, both in terms of capturing the parenting experience and also just the music being so great. And I guess I quietly observed that that model could really work for me because I'm writing this kind of lullaby-like music anyway. Mm. And I wanted to create a project that I'd be able to chip away at in that new mum phase because I'm just not the type of person that could just sit at home being a new mum for a year. (laughs) That's just (laughs) not... I can relate. Yeah, I think a lot of mums probably can. But I I wanted to make something that was um, easy to kind of pull off with sleep deprivation and um, lots of other things on your mind. And so I thought if I write an album of lullabies, it's probably just doing my usual thing, but simplifying the compositions a little more. And I interviewed some music therapists about how to make music that would help babies fall asleep. And they often work with specific children and their families to get particular objectives um, in hospital settings and things like that. And a couple of them pointed me towards some research about things like um, playing tempos similar to a mother's heartbeat or using consistent harmony or consistent beats and repetition, things that babies can kind of um, latch onto and it feels a little bit like being in the womb. And so all of those little parameters I sort of furiously wrote down and tried to um, follow as much as possible. But the other thing they said, which my gut feeling was telling me anyway, observing the Stevies, was just that it's really important to create music that the parents find calming because Mm. if the parents are calm, the baby's more likely to be calm. And music therapists, one of the first things they often do when they're working with a new client is they're asking what musical culture their kid belongs to like do the parents listen to Metallica all day or classical music because if that's the family culture that the kid is belonging to it's really important to try and um, weave that into the way that they deliver music therapy for the children if possible because it will create a harmonious family environment so I followed the parameters that were suggested to me as much as possible but in the end, my goal was to try and make a record that an adult would want to listen to, even if they didn't have children around. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that it's worked because there's these lullabies that are inspired by my son's different stages of development in that first nine months of his life. And that they do soothe many children to sleep, which is like, woohoo, that works. Not for everyone, but for a lot of them, which is great. But it's equally satisfying because this album is played by you know, non-parents and that seems to help them as well. So it's sort of really utilised by people completely across the lifespan. And sometimes I've done shows of this music where there are an ABC classic listeners and stuff that have come along to hear the music just as much as, you know, a baby who's six weeks old. It's completely intergenerational and I'm very grateful to have stumbled across a project that's had the impact I hoped it would. (laughs) And what an incredible gift for your son as well. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if he totally appreciates the gift yet. He's five. (laughs) He listens to the lullabies almost every night. Um, Really? But I don't think he's realised that it's not normal. Like, I think he just thinks all parents would write a lullaby album for All mums are playing piano. (laughs) All mums make records. Yeah, but I think he does, I don't know, when I play the music in front of him, I think he does find it really special. Yeah, I think he sees it as an act of love that most parents would have for their 
children and maybe one day he'll realize that it was a bit more of a niche (laughs) gift (laughs) that I could share with him. You then released Forevermore, which is a jazz sextet reinterpretation of the same compositions, which was nominated for an aria for Best Jazz Album, which is incredible. (laughs) Thank you. How did you approach reworking the music in this context and what compelled you to do that? Mm. Part of it was practical, like I was talking before about venues Mm. and, you know, as a pianist, you can't perform anywhere you've you've really got to find the venues in your city that have a nice piano and I'd had all this experience of working in the jazz scene and you know the original lullaby album still has heaps of improvisation in it I'm doing right hand improvising over the ostinados in almost every piece and I realized that if I just furthered that concept a little bit more in the jazz world it would allow me to keep playing at the venues that I love and um, have connections to in the jazz scene. But I also realised that maybe it would be music that would be played really well by jazz musicians. And I was so right. I brought these pieces in to the jazz quartet that I'm still working with today. And then we did strings on top as well. And I don't think I ever have had to give them any kind of artistic direction like the it's like the pieces kind of play themselves because if you choose the right personnel to interpret them they just know exactly what to do because they have these really simple structures like I think the harmony is interesting and um, there's lots of lyrical melodies to play but in jazz terms it's probably a little bit more simple and slow moving than other pieces I've written beforehand and they just know what to do. The ostinatos I play kind of end up being the foundation of the pieces. And then they just bring their own beautiful meditative lyrical vibe on top. This is Madison Carter, Robbie Melville and Tamara Murphy. So I, I was like, I think, I think this might be a cool idea. And then we went, the first thing we did actually is we played for a music festival for children at the recital center and it was like a gig at 11 a.m it's so funny it's sort of like load in at 8 a.m what a concept (laughs) and by the end of the set we just kind of floated off stage and we all looked at each other like wow this is a really cool thing (laughs) and so I I decided to approach ABC about re-recording the record in a jazz style and and then we were able to do it about five days before lockdown hit Melbourne we managed to track it in a day and yeah I mean that's very jazz yeah the one day album (laughs) yeah and they smashed it because again they just it's just you get you know jazz artists of the highest caliber and you give simple pieces to them and then they just absolutely kill it sounds amazing I realized that it's kind of where I'm most happy particularly in a live setting is playing these classical pieces with jazz musicians because it's a beautiful bridging of the two worlds and it's a bit more playful and flexible and fluid, which I think that's where my background is. You know, my music degree was in jazz and even though I've really struggled to kind of fully adopt the jazz canon in my playing, having that fluidity and flexibility, particularly with other people, it's still one of the greatest privileges you have from a jazz degree, from training in that style. It's, uh, it's the best. Kelly Santon, the saxophone player, said to me, jazz is a mindset, not a genre. So true. 
So true. And I loved that as yeah. a quote. Yeah. And you can see it in the way that jazz musicians are employed in almost all other genres of music mm. and sometimes deliberately avoiding jazz or sometimes it's just like an addition to work in the jazz genre as well because it's just a skill set that's so transferable that your oral training and ability to remember things and be flexible and improvise and respond to what's happening on stage. I mean, jazz artists kind of do that the best out of everyone. Yeah, the only tricky thing is if you want them to play set parts. <laughs> yes, that's true. Get them to read stuff. Again, you've got to choose the right people, I think, for the music. Yeah, choosing the right people. So I had a question around being a band leader and describing what the role of a band leader is oh, and yeah. what makes a great leader. And it sounds like part of your secret of being a band leader is that selection of musicians. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if I'm a good band leader. You'll have to ask the people that play in my bands, but I hope I am. And I, I suspect that one of the most important things has just been about trusting the people that you're engaging with musically and just letting them be themselves and always trying to bring good vibes. So even if behind the scenes there's a lot of extra stuff going on, particularly in the sort of producing and presenting of work, in you know, organising tours or whatever, sometimes I have to try and stop myself bringing all that stress into the musical environment with the mm. players that I'm working with. It's not always easy because it's often on my mind. But, you know, I'll try and, like, limit that and just create a really just try and be a beacon of light in the room because that's what I'm trying to communicate musically so it's like I have to set that example even just in the way that I'm in in the studio or or backstage or in the rehearsal room I think I've also learned perhaps I guess I've got a little bit more of a clear idea of what's important to me in terms of who I employ being an autistic person and very sensitive to um, social communication and conflict resolution is really challenging for me. And so it's I, I find myself employing people that just have the right kind of attitude and vibe. I really struggle with engaging sessional players that are slow to respond to messages and emails and or might not say just nice things afterwards, like, I loved playing on your album you know like there are some some like amazing players that it's it's about nail the music but for me it needs to be also a person that just brings a little bit of like again that being a contributing to that really positive like lovely supportive kind environment um and that yeah so I'm sort of trying to make sure that I preference people and personalities that help to contribute to that culture and almost exclusively that means having a, a gender balance and making sure that it's not a boys club because that n never seems to work out for me <laughs> yeah. yeah it's really important to have the right mix of people especially you know in this industry it's tough you know it's a really hard space to work in and yeah. you know often there's no money in it or you're potentially risking a lot of money mm. so it's got to be fun and it's got to be a vibe you've got yeah. to enjoy doing it otherwise it's sort of like what's the point <laughs> oh totally totally and I've, I've worked in scenarios 
as a session musician myself um, with other people band leading and have observed when that works and when that doesn't. And I have zero interest in creating an environment that's challenging. And if, if it ends up being an environment that is, I just tr- find myself moving on to different programs or projects. Yeah, thank um, you. Next. <laughs> um, yeah. So in terms of being a side person, gun for hire, session player, <laughs> you've worked with artists such as Whitaker, you've done Play School Live, Tando, Sweet Jean, Matt Corby, Ella Thompson, Circus Oz. I mean, this is a really diverse <laughs> list of yeah. projects. What do you think makes a great session player? Mm. I haven't done it for a while because I've been so lucky to have had a lot of work doing my own music. But I think back in the day, I realized a little bit too late that one of the most important things is being really musically dependable, just really knowing the music inside and out. And I think I went through a phase, particularly after I left my jazz degree, where there was this kind of this belief that you could kind of just come and just play like like you could like you could use the skills you've learned as an improviser to just bring your vibe and interpret stuff in a sort of fluid free way but I actually think most of the time like you were describing before a lot of these artists kind of want you to just really nail parts that they had in mind or something that's dependable and reliable so it's kind of like yes using all your jazz skills but knowing when it's just really important to know the music inside out and just be completely dependable and also just being positive inclusive friendly all the things I was saying before especially for the women in the room I think that's you know important because I think sometimes particularly session players and male session players there's you know there's a lot of networking and um, relationship building that happens in rehearsals and touring and stuff and because the employment is uncertain I think there's a lot of anxiety that sits in the room where people are really trying to like foster more work with this artist and that can sometimes I think create an environment that's actually quite hard for women if they're particularly if it's not a gender balanced ensemble so for me if it's like a session player that really knows the music is respecting it and then is also I guess respecting the communication and relationships in the room they are worth all the money in the world Mm. (laughs) as a chamber music composer you've been commissioned to write pieces for inventi ensemble plexus collective solstice trio the muses trio (laughs) and sally whitwell can you tell us about how you approach creating a commissioned work Mm. it depends i think what the ensemble are asking so sometimes they want you to bring your own ideas and concepts to the work they just they would like you to write something but they and don't it's know up what. to you they just want you yeah they just want <laughs> want me which i'm so grateful for other times there's a little bit of uh, i guess criteria or sort of set of themes or ideas that they want me to do. So an example might be with Plexus, I had to write a work for an International Women's Day concert and it needed to be inspired by a nurse from World War One, which led me to write a piece called Into the Light, which I actually dedicated to all the nurses of World War One who 
you know, lived through unimaginable horrors and stuff, but also for a lot of them, it was an opportunity to step outside the usual gender roles for the first time in their life and also eventually went back to all those same gender roles of being a mother and a wife and all that. So, yeah, so sometimes it's like that where there's a bit of terms set and other times it's up to me. And so with Inventi, for example, I wrote the Merlin Meyer Commission for Melbourne Recital Centre for them and myself to play. And it was my own idea of um, writing a, a work inspired by photographs by Julia Margaret Cameron, who was a Victorian-era portrait photographer, one of the first female photographers um, wow. in the world. So it, it can kind of be one or the other. And, and if it's the former where there's a bit of terms being set by the ensemble, it's often about sitting down with them in a Zoom meeting or in person and you know really getting an idea of what they had in mind their vision for it and then you sort of left your own devices and come up with a draft and send it for feedback and check that everything's playable and the instruments and that they're happy and then make some more changes and and that's where I, you know I was talking about the importance of scoring I think that you know in that world of writing commissions for chamber ensembles the scoring becomes so important because these are works that I haven't personally recorded or performed so there's no reference point at all and they really want to know what my intention is as a composer so do you go to that first rehearsal and hear it played and then go oh actually I need to tweak this score because (laughs) yeah yeah worst case scenario is you do that and you're going oh wow that that whole section really doesn't work (laughs) and you have to go back and fix it but most of the time it's small adjustments so they'll send through like a rehearsal recording or if I'm lucky I get to be in the room and it might be things like oh bar 37 can you just not play that left hand part and just play the right hand or can we change the slurring of the violin there so you know the it's got more legato or you know just little tweaks that process of getting composer feedback in the rehearsal process before a premiere is is pretty important because, yeah, there's, again, there's no reference point other than the score. And sometimes there's things you've missed in the score. Like they go, um, sorry, I've just noticed you've got a tied B flat for ages. And then all of a sudden, the next note you have is a B. Um, do you need that to be a B flat as well? And it's like, imagine going to the premiere and then all of a sudden there's a note, a semitone out. And you didn't know till you were there. It's so it's, it's really important part of the <laughs> process. Make sure you haven't missed anything. Mm. Yeah, I can't imagine. It's such a different world. It's so meticulous, like incredibly meticulous, which is not something I'm necessarily good at all the time. Like sometimes I just like with jazz artists, I love just pressing record, doing a take. It's got imperfections and it sounds unique. And every time you press record, it will sound different. And I love that about jazz and improvisation. And in the classical world, it's like the opposite. It's being meticulous and very specific. And so it's kind of a skill set I've had to learn. But then on the flip side, you have this experience of going to a premiere of your work and sitting in the audience. How exciting. And it's just so thrilling because you don't even have to do <laughs> do anything. I know that sounds... Just get dressed I don't up mean and to have sound champagne. Lazy. And exactly. Waltz in, I'm the composer, yeah. darling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take a bow. If you're lucky, you might get some flowers or something. But I think what I mean by that is it's such a privilege to have other musicians that want to play your music on stage yes. without you. And, it, and, and 
just to sit there and soak that up and hear them play music that I can't personally play myself. Like the Plexus piece, for example, I eventually performed it with Inventi Ensemble for the first time, but the piano part's really hard. So why not give it to Stefan Casaminos who can <laughs> absolutely make him work, kill it. Just yeah, way better than me. Make it work. Yeah, it's very thrilling. Yeah. How does it work in terms of exclusivity? If they've commissioned you, is it sort of their piece? Hmm. Do you, you know, could you possibly put together an album with a bunch of these compositions yourself or do they have it for a set period of time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think sometimes, well, there's certainly the expectation that a commissioning ensemble will premiere the work first. So you can't write a piece and then have someone else play it live first yes of course yeah in terms of recording i suppose it's really up to the individual agreement and whether the ensemble has any intention of recording it i've been thinking about recording some of these chamber music commissions myself um, because i make records quite often and that's something i love to do to express who i am and yeah sometimes it's like hey just checking do you mind if i record into the light or did you plan to do it and so there's a few of those little conversations that have to happen often after the fact because these commissions are often quite informal and there is no discussion about you know um publishing and all those other aspects usually it's an exclusivity of um live performance at the beginning and the premiere and then the work is the work yeah 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 and then the work is the work and, and because I would own the publishing and um, have the capacity to record it myself, I would ultimately be hoping I can record it and play it in some way myself. Yeah, yeah well, I would love to hear some of these pieces, you know, recorded. Yeah. Um, you're currently studying a Master's of Composition at the Melbourne Conservatorium of Music. What? (laughs) With all the things that you've written and achieved already, what made you decide Uh to go back to university? What are you hoping to (laughs) learn from doing the master's? Yeah, well, the good thing about the master's is that you only have to submit a folio of your works. So you don't have to write a thesis for the master's of composition at, at Melbourne Conservatorium. You actually just submit a folio of your written works and the scores are are intended to be as perfectly published as if you wrote a thesis and so really it's just a folio of pieces that I'm writing out in my real world job of being a solo Mm -hmm. artist and composer Um, for example hope will be in my folio the whole album Um, and then some commissions I've written for other people and stuff but the main reason why I decided to go and do it is because I wanted to get a little bit more skilled at writing for classical musicians and orchestrating things and scoring things better because I guess a lot of jazz musicians do delve into the classical world but I guess I wanted to do it in a more formal capacity and also amazing things like I've got the opportunity to write a piece for the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra to play not it's not part of their public um sort of concert series hopefully one day but it's um you know there's like a workshop where they'll play through your work and so I'm I'm, you know, really? and, yeah, and then I'm also being commissioned to um, arrange Hope, the song, for the Stonington Symphony Orchestra. So I've got two different works being played by orchestra in the next few months. And, you know, that's definitely a skill set that I needed to go back to uni. And yeah, have they, don't te- with... they don't teach you that at jazz school. No, 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 they don't. And so I really owe a great 
debt to Stuart Greenbaum, who's been my, my main supervisor through the last couple of years and helping me to learn about these this other worlds. And it's so funny because I feel I've entered the classical world at a side door as a performer composer and, you know, there's the basic conventions of composition that you would learn at undergraduate level that I've never learned. And every once in a while it really comes back to bite me and there's something really obvious that I've missed. And being in that course is obviously helping smooth over those bumps a little bit more. Yeah, the no- I still not feel like, knowledge gaps. Yeah, I still feel like if I walk down the street and I saw someone carrying a contrabassoon, I still don't know if I could identify it on site, you know. There's definitely things I've, like a lot of things I've got to learn. I feel confident in my compositional style, but in terms of orchestrating for, you know, ensembles and scoring things, I've got a lot more to learn still. That's exciting. Yeah. So is there a PhD in the future? (laughs) Are we going to be a Dr. Nat Barch? I would love to be a Dr. Nat Barch and I definitely would like to do a PhD, but, um, get the masters done first when the time is right yeah yeah i would love i would love that yeah well any of the uh, university professors that might be listening yeah <laughs> get in quick with those scholarship bids <laughs> yeah i definitely want to get paid to do it <laughs> yeah. yeah otherwise it's like that's a lot of work for no money I, I mean obviously the pursuit of knowledge and and writing new works is very special but yeah we also have to eat and pay rent so exactly <laughs> there's no shame in that yeah back to the stage and talking about gigs I read that you took your trio to perform in Japan and you played in a temple (laughs) can you tell us about that yeah that was awesome I think it was Izuka which is a small town fairly in the mountains I can't remember where it was near this was a long time ago I've been very lucky to have a promoter in Japan who works with a lot of ECM artists and his name is Tom Osawa hi Tom if you're listening and uh, he organized a tour for us where we played a couple of jazz clubs and then we went and played in this temple. And I think that the comparison to make is that, you know, there are a lot of churches in Australia that would be used for live music sure, performances. Yeah, yeah. And so it was a little bit like that, except because it was Japan and they they value music and I guess and also products really high. I don't know if that's the right word, but obviously there's a manufacturing culture there with real artisans, you know, Mm. that make really incredible things. So we went into this temple in the mountains in in a small town and there was a Steinway concert grand. No. Yeah. (laughs) In the temple. Really? Yeah. And they did these small concerts for the local community and it was one of the highlights of my performance career. Thanks for bringing it up. I forgot. (laughs) I forgot about it. It was so special. How beautiful. And what was the crowd response like? Uh, I guess the the Japanese really value um, European jazz. There's a real market for ECM over there. And so I guess they have really appreciated my music. And I think actually neoclassical piano is also quite on the rise in Japan and I haven't been back for a long time, but um, I did find out the second biggest market for hope with digital streaming other than Australia is Japan. So there were small audiences, but super, super into it. And I I guess I found that a lot with live shows the last few years. Like I don't, I guess I have the quality of the fan sometimes over the quantity. Did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also, you know, as you were saying, you want a room that has a great piano and often they're in smaller yeah. spaces like jazz clubs and places like that if you think of our larger venues in town for example like 
here in Melbourne, the Forum or the Corner yeah, or exactly. venues that have these thousand people capacities, yeah, they don't have pianos. Yeah, it's it's either a small chamber music like space, like um, the salon at the recital centre or a jazz club, or it's like Hamer Hall or some kind of absolutely ginormous theatre. <laughs> and generally speaking. I'm not really at that level of being able to play in a giant hall. Well, not many people can out. sell those rooms. Yeah, exactly. How many Look, people I can sell ten thousand seats? I mean, yeah, ten thousand seats. I don't. I think I'd have a breakdown <laughs> playing playing my quiet, introspective music to ten thousand people. But hopefully, one day we can do a podcast about me doing that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. All right, let's, <laughs> let's do that. that. We'll reconvene. <laughs> I wonder, I'm trying to think if any pianist would have played to 10,000 people. I reckon mm. those big festival gigs, mm. you know, like in Newport Jazz or whatever, maybe. Yeah. Elton John. Yeah. Oh, well, yes, yeah. of course, in that space. <laughs> Lady Gaga, Alicia Keys. Yeah. Yeah. I did see Alicia Keys at Rod Laver Arena a few years ago. Wow. She had her, I think it was white, like this big piano that, you know, it was it came up through the stage you know all that yeah theatrics and it spun around awesome while she played it i would love that would you how good would that be like hope but just like on a rotating (laughs) rotating stage yeah i can't imagine um yeah with like glitter cannons and yeah 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 that's really me. I mean, the glitter cannons are. I don't know if the white piano. It was fun. I guess, you know, she wanted to use as much of the stage as possible. She had two keyboards set up, stage left and stage right, quite up close to, yeah. the, to the front of the stage, downstage, mm. and then her piano in the center. And on some songs, she had a wireless, like her radio mic, and then she'd go to the keyboard up the front and like smash out some stuff on that. And then she'd walk to the other keyboard mm. and smash out some stuff on that. And then she'd oh. be like, I'm going to play my piano now. And then she'd yeah, go yeah. over to the <laughs> piano. Amazing. So she wasn't, I guess, sort of just stuck on yeah. her piano the whole time. Yeah. I saw Tori Amos once years and years ago and she had a piano on one side and then like, I think a Hammond or something on the other. And then she would kind of straddle the piano stool and have one hand on each. I just thought that was like so cool but of course now I know a lot more about um you know keyboard sessional players and having multiple keyboards and playing them at different times is pretty standard <laughs> <laughs> but it was very cool yeah, yeah. It's super cool yeah changing track a little the last couple of years there's been some much overdue conversations in the music industry around mental health for artists which I know is something you've spoken quite Mm. a lot about Mm. can you tell us about some of the research that you've done around mental health and creativity Mm. my honors degree was about this and looking at the way mood affects creativity and and there's always been a lot of research as it was touched on in your other podcast episode about can music make you sick about depression and mania and general kind of heartache having an impact on creative activity and a lot of research about things like how would hypermania or depression increase your creative productivity like for Mm. example just all of a sudden feeling inspired to write an album or a symphony and I think that's a trope that's been around for a long time and I really wanted to look at that and look at my own mental health and whether there was a relationship there and what was really interesting is I looked at my performances and touring and 
composition and stuff. And yes, my mood definitely affected um, my creative productivity. But also I found that working in the industry also had an impact on mood. For example, playing a show I played with Matt Corby at Groove in the Moo festivals all around. And there was 10, 20,000 people singing along to Brother. I'm playing the piano part. And um, obviously that's a really thrilling experience and it would send a lot of people into a kind of a hyperactive, hypermanic state. Mm. And then conversely, there's those times where the gig is over and you're coming home and you just got to put the bins out and you've got nothing, <laughs> in, the, you've got nothing in the diary, you've got nothing on on Monday and that can really drag your mood down. So I kind of curiously found that it was like a real, there's a two-way relationship between mood and creativity. Mood can inspire you to create work either because you're feeling depressed or you're feeling really creatively inspired and engaged, but it can also affect your capacity to work in the industry because the industry can affect how you're feeling. I think there's this myth that artists must suffer to create good art and it's just perpetuated in the industry for so long. There's a lot of reluctance, for example, to take medication because people are worried it's going to affect their creativity or mm. sometimes even just see a psychologist. I think that's probably changing now. I really just disagree with that. I think the albums where I've had the most success have been the ones where I am really well treated for neurodiversity, take medication and feel really well within myself. I'm able to complete creative tasks and rehearse and perform and work with other people, go on tour. Um, and all of those things are dependent on having good mental health. So the suffering is kind of irrelevant. Like if you're feeling depressed and you, and you start writing a beautiful introspective piano piece, I mean, that's great. But as an example, there's a single that was released last year of mine called Another Time, Another Place. And I started writing that um, when I was being treated for depression. It's got this beautiful melody at the start and then I never finished it because my mental health was too crappy. It was just a half-finished scribble on a piece of paper in a drawer. And then it was years later when I was feeling well that I found the half-finished composition and finished it and then recorded it and now perform it. And so the depression might have spurred some kind of creative response, but that's very different to being a creative professional and mm. what's expected and required of you in the industry. You need to be at your fittest mentally and physically to be able to do it sustainably. Yeah, and to cope in extremely challenging environment and an industry where, you know, we were talking, you know, before we hit the record button, just around mm. being in an industry that, isn't unionized where there isn't you know a guaranteed wage or a minimum wage for artists there is no yeah. sick pay there's no yeah. superannuation you're essentially running your own business yeah so you have to be you've got to be on your game yeah I think there's a culture that the show must go on at all costs and sometimes that is completely unrealistic and it's particularly hard if you write original music like if you are Chelsea Wilson playing Chelsea Wilson's songs and you injure yourself or have a mental health episode and all these ticket holders have booked to come and see you play, there is so much pressure 
for you to just be you and do your music on stage the way everybody expects. You can't just call someone else up and be like, hey, can you just come and play my songs <laughs> on stage because I'm not feeling well. And I've, I've been stuck in that scenario so many times. I had a really major depressive breakdown in 2009 and was unwell for more than a year before I found medications and treatment that worked for me. And it was in a phase where I guess I had a bit of career momentum as a jazz um, band leader and composer and also playing a lot of session gigs. And the phone would ring and it would be like, hey, can you do this gig in, you know, on May 17? And that would be in four months' time. And I'd be like, I think I'll be feeling better by then, so I'll say yes. And then I'd get to May 17 and I'd still be feeling really terrible. And, and then I'd have to decide, do I let this person down and cancel or do I just rally and kind of put on the mask and get out mm. there and do it? Um, and sometimes I just really wasn't well enough to do that. It was sort of there was a cost to doing that because I would feel so vulnerable on stage um, and communicating with other people. And I think if I could wave a magic wand with the industry, I would kind of pump a whole bunch of funding into it that enables artists to set up kind of basic workplace rights like being able to have a sick day and be paid or being able to have an understudy for your work. I found one of the easiest ways to re-enter the music industry after being unwell was I did a lot of double bill concerts and that's how I got to know Luke Howard really well and it was really important because I needed to know that there was a plan B if I wasn't feeling well and if I decided that this particular day was was one of those like 10 out of 10 depression days that I could call Luke and be like hey Luke do you think you could just do two sets tonight and because everybody loves Luke so much I'm sure they wouldn't be too disappointed <laughs> if Luke did more music and that was a really important step but I think for a lot of artists there is no fallback imagine if we had funding where we could train up people to learn the repertoire like so for example you've got a guitarist who's working in your band, who knows all your tunes, but is, you know, managing to recover from a mental health condition. They can register with some kind of organisation which basically matches them with another guitarist who can be paid to learn all the material and be on standby and gets a paid a fee to be an understudy for that night. And then it means if the guitarist's guitarist one is feeling well and they can go on stage and do what they need to do if they're not feeling great there's a fallback so that the band leader and performer and promoter don't have to experience that unbelievable amount of stress of trying to solve the problem um, but also that will mean that there's less pressure um, on the on guitarist one to rally and do it if they're not well and the same applies to physical illness disability chronic injuries all that stuff there's I think there's a tier of people that work in the industry that feel like they have to perform at all costs and that's the culture we've created for them which is really sad and there's also I think a tier of musicians that aren't performing because they found it hard to navigate managing their well-being and that's really sad and I think there are solutions there that we're just not able to adopt because it's such an unregulated underfunded industry that's yeah, my dream. That <laughs> understudy concept yeah. is really interesting, but it's not 
new. I mean, exactly. they do it in music theatre and, exactly. you know, there's a range of other models where yeah. or industries where that is the model. Yeah. Imagine you could, have a, you could have a freelance musician that's paid to be a swing and they're funded by the Australia Council for the Arts and they learn material and repertoire for like five different guitarists and are just available that you know they have nights on call where they are able to you know step into the role of any of those guitarists and any of those gigs if required kind of like a lot of other industries yeah (laughs) it would be great what do you think are some things that artists and behind the scenes workers can do to try and improve conditions to support mental health Mm. of artists you know i think artists need to look after artists yeah it's so true you know it's so true Look, doing mental health first aid would be really great for a lot of um, people that work in the industry and a lot of people do do it. But it just means that you have the skill set to understand if people aren't coping and how you can respond to that at a gig or at a rehearsal or particularly on tour. I also, I've recently learned about the concept of the access rider, which is a very cool idea. So access meaning disability accommodations. Um, or disability rights really so you know you might have a rider for your catering or you know a rider for your technical requirements but an access rider is saying hey like in my instance hey I'm autistic these are the things that would be required um, at this venue for me to be able to perform at my best and it could be things like um, a quiet space away from other band members where I can go if I'm feeling sensory overwhelm or I'm tired of social communication or it might be photographs of um, the backstage area so I can yeah. visualise what it'll be like or, um, you know, just very small accommodations. But I think the concept of an access rider doesn't have to apply to people who only have lifelong disability. It could be... I, I love the idea of um, sharing a kind of list of expectations that can support people who are feeling unwell and that might be recovering from COVID or it might be... Um, you know feeling depression or performance anxiety or you know there are so many different ways like RSI is a great example Um, there are so many ways that people can be injured or um, unsupported in the industry and it means it's just like a framework it's very simple it's a piece of paper or, or a pdf that's you know forwarded to a band leader or a promoter or a venue or a manager that helps demonstrate really practical ways that you can help someone in the industry yeah and I think just asking the question as well so the onus isn't on the person to have to exactly say that's something I've learned which I never used to do that until an artist said to me hey you know I actually have access needs and this wasn't made clear to me I I actually need to know you know and and she said to me I I look well and it looks like I'm capable of doing things more physically but I get really really tired and I actually need to know like how many hundred meters walk it's going to be from the car park to the rehearsal room yeah yeah I need to know those kind of it's exactly you know it's not just about wheelchair access it's about yeah what those conditions are going to be like yeah there's so much there's I mean there's so many hidden disabilities yeah people don't see and you know I think in the music industry, there's a huge amount of people that are neurodivergent, whether they know it or not. And there are a lot of people who are awaiting assessment for um, things like autism and ADHD. And so if that's true, that there are a lot of, you know, extremely accomplished musicians that have neurodiverse 
access needs. These are conversations that we should be able to have all the time. And yeah, I think unfortunately the onus is often on the person with disability to, to self-advocate and say, these are the things I need. And sometimes that's not possible. Like social communication can be hard for a lot of a lot of people in yeah, general, really but fair, also especially for you know neurodivergent people. And so if it's hard enough to be in a rehearsal space, kind of just making day-to-day chit-chat, how do you go up to someone and say, oh, I really need a quiet space right now. I'm having a bit of a meltdown. You just can't do that. So that's what I love about the writer thing is it's, it's, it's sort of proactive and preemptive and it's kind of like one step. There's a bit of separation between the musician who needs support and the person who needs to implement it. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. And I've definitely seen more and more of that coming through with writers and with other things as well, like uh, environmental consciousness of bands Mm. saying, I don't want any single-use plastic backstage. I don't want water bottles and, you know, can we make – I want all the loos to be – gender neutral and things like that so there's definitely more of that happening yep and kudos also by the way to creative victoria who have been creating the option to have access funding on top of a grant that you might get for a project whereas in other other grants i've applied for yes you can use um some of the grant for access um but that's actually money that might otherwise for a neurotypical musician just be spent on like an extra day of mixing whereas creative victoria has ring fenced a um, grants specifically for disabled musicians and artists but also um often like in the covid grants you know it was i think it was five thousand dollars to do a project but then there was an extra two and a half thousand dollars on top if you had a disability and had access requirements and so it's sort of saying we're aware that you need extra support to complete your project but we don't think you should be disadvantaged Mm. in creating the project to get that support so bravo creative victoria yeah it's great to see that acknowledgement happening so you recently also contributed a chapter to we've got this Mm. stories by disabled parents which you co-wrote with your husband yeah what was that process like and have you two collaborated on anything like uh, this before uh well we've collaborated a bit musically um so my husband jeremy is a drummer and singer and um also a songwriter he's currently making an album that satirizes the music industry okay <laughs> it's extremely funny um i can't wait to share it with the world basically we have both realized that we're autistic in the last three years as we became parents and so we've got this is a book that was edited by Eliza Hull who's an amazing musician as well as a writer and we were asked to contribute a chapter and I think ours is particularly unique because we're the only uh, parents that wrote about parenting in this book that discovered what our disabilities were through the process of parenting. Wow. So Jeremy and I both working at high levels in the music industry and had various different um, other diagnoses. But actually what we had missed was that there were these autistic symptoms that were sort of bubbling under the surface. But when you work in the music industry, a lot of that stuff is kind of missed because it's, you know, an industry where um, that stuff is kind of normalised. I guess that there are a lot of neurodivergent people 
um, working in it and also the, the work is varied and you can sleep in if you're tired and all that stuff but then all of a sudden when you're a parent you can't do that and we found ourselves kind of struggling with some really basic parenting tasks like for me it was things like doing a childcare pickup so stopping composing at 4 30 mm-hmm. getting in the car driving collecting the child bringing him home hearing the cartoons cooking dinner so all of these things require um brain space to transition from one activity to the yes. other <laughs> and i was just beside myself i could have just cr- like climbed the walls with dysregulation and stress and and I used to get really angry and impatient and pouring the wine at five o'clock and just trying to find any way to bring myself back down to um that you know a level where I could be present and calm with my family and Jeremy has had other issues um that he's had to address as well and so writing that chapter was really cathartic for us um because it was a way of telling our story um, and about what it means to be neurodivergent. And we're both very proudly autistic and have no issue telling the world about our neurodiversity. Particularly, I think it's a great time to find out that you're neurodivergent when you're in your 30s and perhaps you're a little bit less worried about like social norms or, you know, you're just kind of doing your thing. I often joke, it's really great finding out you're autistic when you've had two ARIA nominations. Like, whatever you're doing in your life is probably going fine and it's just like it's like a little bit of an extra understanding of yourself on top I mean kudos to the autistic community for being so good at encouraging autistic people to celebrate their unique strengths and talents and advocate for their needs and in a really kind of neuroaffirming way it's awesome and um the book is great and there are chapters written by all sorts of different parents that live with all sorts of different situations and disabilities and different children of different ages and different professions and stuff and it's so fascinating it's I reckon it should be a must read yeah yeah definitely worth a read Nat Barch thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me on the control podcast it's been my pleasure thanks so much for having me You've been listening to Nat Barch in Control. For more info on Nat and links to her music, please check the show notes. A full transcription for this episode is available on controlpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this episode of Control, please tell your friends. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you have a moment, please do leave a review. It helps others to find the podcast. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin nations. I'd like to pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. Until next time, please be kind. Chelsea Wilson signing off. This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre. The centre has just launched its biannual Merlin Meyer Music Commission, a program that supports Australian female composers to create new musical works. Discover more about the commission and how to apply at melbournerecital.com.au forward slash news.